This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. One of the most enjoyable periods in my working career was the five years I spent between 2001 and 2006 working as the writer's tutor at the Royal Court Theatre's Young Writers Programme. It was great fun because I worked with great people like the legendary Ola Anamashawan who set up and ran the programme and the staff he put together. Uh, It was great fun because I got to be part of the Royal Court staff for five years but it was also great fun because of the writers I got to work with there over the course of that half a decade. I think I worked with about 800 writers in various capacities. I worked with young offenders and 12-year-old school children, business executives and international aspiring artists. Some of the writers I worked with have gone on to work in theatre, some to write professionally and some, a handful of who I'll be talking to in these podcasts, have gone on to dazzling success. When that happens... I often find myself thinking about the first time they came into the site, across the alleyway from where we are here, in what is described as the red rehearsal room on level one of the Royal Court, with the window open, you can hear the noise coming in from the alleyway. The site across the alleyway from the court, I used to run the groups. It's always fascinating to ask myself if I'd noticed anything in the spirit of, say, Jack Thorne, for example, or Mike Bartlett, Laura Wade, or Chloe Moss, that even in their early career marked them out as likely to succeed. With the case of Lucy Preble, my answer is unequivocal. Some writers have a spark of vitality about them from the start that marks them out as exceptional. She came to the Young Writers Programme in the autumn of 2002, shortly after a play Liquid had won the most promising playwright award at the National Student Drama Festival. I worked with her for 10 weeks, and at the end of those 10 weeks, she handed in the first draft of her next play, The Sugar Syndrome. It was a startling read, alert and sexy, dark and searching. It explored the humanity of paedophilia and the transgressive nature of trust and tenderness. It was quickly programmed by the court, opening in November 2003, winning her a handful of awards and launching her to national attention. The following decade saw her write with great success for television and also for computer games, notably uh, for television with a TV series she's confessed to a complicated relationship with The Secret Diary of a Call Girl and uh, my 14-year-old favourite first-person shooter game that I'm not allowed to name for contractual reasons. She didn't write a third play, though, for some six years. In 2009, Headlong Theatre launched her extraordinary Enron at the Chichester Festival before it transferred to the court downstairs, a theatrically audacious study of the corruption and fragility at the heart of the collapsed Enron organisation. By the time it opened, it felt like a searing interrogation of the 2008 economic collapse. It ran for a year in London's West End and for a week on Broadway. She followed it up with the play that I think is her most brilliant. The effect is a heartbreaking exploration of the nature of emotion. It is a play that sits in the space between its formal clarity and the deep level of feeling in the writing, asking brave questions about what it is to experience love. It opened at the National Theatre in 2012 and at New York's beautiful Barrow Street Theatre earlier this year. 
Lucy Preble. Welcome to my podcast. Hello, Simon. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. I really want to ask you, uh, just because you're the first writer who I work with in the Young Writers Programme, about your perspective on those 10 weeks, about what it was like going into the site. Um, you came just straight from the NSDF, pretty much. Have I misremembered that? No, I must have done. It's difficult to remember accurately what And you're happened. so poorly. I have to tell oh, people yes, that you're you should, really I do poorly. I have a bit of a cold, so that's why my voice is going to be slightly annoying. It's um, not annoying, it's great. I like people when they've got colds. Um, Their voices. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. yeah, so I may have a bit of a hacking cough. But, yeah, it's really funny. Because I, th- I was thinking about that, because I thought, when would be the first time that we had ever met mm. and what we would have thought of each other? And yeah what the impression was. And of course, the impression you gave in that introduction was very positive, but I don't know if that's really true. Do you remember? No, really? I do. I do remember. I remember, I remember because uh, you were in a... You were a little bit too old for the group you'd been possibly That's with. right. That's you were, right. The, we did two groups that particular term, 17 yeah. to 20 and 21 to 25. Mm-hmm. And you were about 21, but were in the 17 to 20 group. Because the other one was really full. It was re- and you were in with a load of sick formers. That's right. And I remember thinking, she's far smarter than everybody else here. No. Although they were fucking smart. Oh, they, they were, were really smart. There were some really good kids in that group. Yeah. And also remember thinking she's really confident and uh, she's really... She's it's so funny something. thinking that because, thinking back, because I so don't identify with that now. Mm. Now, I look, now I think about it and it's a real ugly duckling element to it. Like, I remember feeling sort of literally bigger than some of the people there. And a, a lot like, like that element of, you know, kind of, I wasn't quite supposed to be there. Which right. Which is an interesting emotion for a writer to feel and, and actually not an unhelpful one. You know, I felt <laughs> slightly outside the group, which yeah. writers often feel very comfortable being. Yeah. And so I remember that. And I remember, if I'm going to be really, really honest, I remember often trying to stop myself speaking because I was like very, I was, I was sort of like, well, I think I probably know the answer to that. And so I'm not going to say, so I'm going to let them have a go. But what's amazing about that is how now I look at that and I think, oh, my God, like, I actually thought there were answers to things, which is really charming. It's like I was sort of at, the, at that early 20s age of going, well, I, I think I'm, you know, I think I think I can work out this playwriting lock. I think, you know, and now I feel so completely opposite to that, you know, mm. so completely devoid of that kind of certainty and confidence that I think I must have had then or at least a veneer of it at that stage in my life and I I I miss it a little bit I've got to be honest I see it in early plays when I reread them and I you know obviously as I'm sure you know you don't feel connected completely to the person who wrote it yeah and yet and I used to be tremendously embarrassed about that I would read early plays and I would think oh god that's so embarrassing the the gesture of it the certainty of it the um brio of it uh-huh. and now I and now I'm getting older I'm actually becoming quite fond of that person because of the things they had that I have changed or lost I always think it's a bit like looking at a photograph of oneself right. from one's youth and you kind of have a strange combination of uh, what was I doing with my hair yeah and where the fuck's that jacket gone that was great jacket yeah. why don't, why don't right. I wear a jacket like that anymore exactly it's, it's a schizophrenic thing yeah, yeah, and I don't. Yeah, so I, I have. Yeah, I remember your description of that person. I remember the, who that person was. Yeah. But I do not feel the same person 
And mm. I really don't. And I know you sort of think that we are and all of that, but I, I don't. Although biologically we're not, are we? Every seven, seven years, years, I mean, I don't know if that what actually means. I, yeah, cellular regrowth and sort of replacement um, stuff, but yeah. If I, our identity exists entirely in a cellular level, yeah. then it's true, but it's a bit more than that somehow, isn't it? Well, yeah, or maybe it's not. It's quite interesting to imagine it's not. And then every seven years you get a chance to maybe change partner, change job. Become good if it was a very thing. clean seven years <laughs> thing, though, right? <laughs> like, a sh- like a snake shedding its skin, where you just become a completely yeah. different person. Go, excellent. Exactly. Here's yeah. the next stage of my yeah. life. Well, we're in the Royal Court now at the moment with Matt Smith playing in Unreachable. That's right. uh, uh, You know, the Doctor Who. We could regenerate like, yes. the, like the Doctor Who every seven years. Yeah, I'd be a fan of that. <laughs> and be surprised by what our face looked like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you had come straight from the NSDF. Yeah, pretty much. I I trouble remembering the actual dates, but I I did the National Student Drama Festival in my final year of university, and then when I left, I did temping for quite a long time, mm. secretarial work mostly, admin, in lots of different industries. And I remember coming to the Royal Court during one of those secretarial periods to right. do it. Do you know, again, what's really funny is I must have pushed to get on that course because I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. I must have sort of harangued them a bit in order yeah. to get into it. And again, I don't really have the connection emotionally with that person. Now I would find, now I'd be tremendously embarrassed to do that. And I don't really associate that kind of characteristic with myself. So I'm glad she did, though. I'm glad she did. <laughs> was Liquid your very first play? Liquid was the play that was chosen when you were at Sheffield University. Yes. Yeah? Yes. And it was chosen to, uh, to go to the NSDF and you won the most promising... Playwright Award for was Liquid your very first play, or had you written before that? Well, I've always written. Um, had you always always written plays? No, mixture of almost everything really. Per you know, bad poetry, songs, um, yeah. diaries, short stories. Yeah. I did a lot of what you'd now call fan fiction that didn't really have a name then. Wow, so a lot of programs that I liked. Yeah, now I look back, I have all these old exercise books when I was a kid that I would just fill with episodes that I was writing of the shows that I liked. <laughs> But what's interesting is what that were they you writing which episode <laughs> they were mostly Star Trek they were mostly sci-fi based <laughs> but not all some of the, they're, they're, <laughs> they were, but, but but they're all in they're all in short story form with quite a lot of dialogue in in um, Great, inverted commas but I I recognise that as being about the fact that I I would never have seen a screenplay or certain and certainly not a play script right. until I was at university right. so. I wouldn't have had any idea that those existed or... Were you a child that went to the theatre? No, no. What was your first time you ever went to the theatre? Well, I say that. We went probably with school to see Shakespeare's, I think. Right. And I have a memory... This was in Surrey? Yeah. I was born in Hitchin, Hertfordshire. Yeah. And then when I was a bit older, I grew up in a little town called Hazelmere. Yeah. And then mostly... Yeah, mostly there or thereabouts until Sheffield. Really. Right. So. But but school was the first time you remember going to the theatre. I always ask people when they first went to the theatre. I suspect my parents took me to musicals. I think I remember right. seeing Forty Second Street, but I can't remember where yeah. when that mm. was. But I remember being very affected by seeing a musical. I remember going. I remember people sort of dancing on their way out. Uh, you know, and I, I have very Audi- audience audience members, members coming yeah. out onto the yeah. street, and they who and they were so elated yes. that they were sort of doing a little dance Great. based on something they'd seen, and I have a very strong memory of that, and thinking that that was quite fantastic. I remember one of my early memories of leaving a drama was leaving Star Wars as oh, yeah. a, as a seven year old, so desperately wanting to be Han Solo. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's that moment where we leave the drama. Yeah. And it continues to live in our metabolism afterwards. Absolutely. And I think that's why, and then this is a conversation for later, maybe, but I think that's why it's so important how and who is represented in things like film and drama because I certainly grew up desperately wanting to be Indiana Jones, you know, to, to continue oh, the Harrison Ford thing. I was obsessed with the idea of being like an adventure archaeologist. Yeah. But quite, you know, there's an essential difference between me and Indiana Jones. Yeah. And that's quite difficult to reconcile yeah. with how you live. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just raising that alongside it. But yeah, yeah, I, cer- I, yeah, I certainly felt similarly to that. And uh, the first plays were at school. We're going to see Shakespeare with school rather than at school. Yeah. yeah. And but then the first play script you read would have been well, what did you study? What did you do? I did English literature at Sheffield. Right. Um there was some drama element to it. It was it was it wasn't English and drama, but there was a drama track you could go on. Which and were you st- and were you continuing to write in all that time you went through your, your undergraduate? Yes, it never yeah. occurred to me to show my writing to anybody. That's something that is not has had not and was not really massively uh, important to me. Um, I did act a little bit at school. I was, I was always, they always, because I was quite like, because I was quite broad backed and big, I would always get given boy parts in mm. plays. And so uh, that, they're often quite good parts. Because, was it a girl's, you know, it was a girl's yeah, school? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that age. So, yeah. so that was, so that was quite interesting because you then actually get access to things that you might not get access to otherwise in terms of size and depth of, of, of roles and stuff. Yeah. So that was, that was good. But, um, but yeah, at university, um, yeah, I was writing all through that. Uh, but if mostly. You, if you weren't writing to show yeah. people, what were you writing for? The first thing I ever wrote was a. Um, I wrote, the first thing I ever remember writing was a two hand dialogue between my mother and my father explaining to each other exactly what it is that they were trying to express. And it had an awesome, horrific clarity to it that basically defined bad writing, but it was the opposite of what was going on. And that was telling in terms of my need to want to explain and explore people's miscommunication with each other. And it explains to me why I'm, of, I'm often drawn to lucidity in writing yeah. in the way that other writers I admire very much are drawn to a sort of authentic, uh, shambolic kind of... Inarticulacy. Inarticulacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, in writing, which I admire hugely because I don't do it terribly well. But I, was just I understand exactly why I your, do the opposite. Yeah, your yeah. plays are defined by a fantastic clarity. Yeah, and, and I don't think clarity is necessarily a great thing for a writer. Or I think it can be very good in prose, but I think in dialogue it's tricky. Well, it define, it, what it can do, what, what I think, what's really interesting is I don't think it's necessarily, and we, again, we're jumping ahead probably a little bit, it's not very good in studio theatres, but it's fucking brilliant in proscenium arts theatres yes. and big theatres. Yes. So it's like you were writing for big theatres. Well, and also I have real trouble writing for small theatres. Like, that's not in like a false modesty way. Yeah. I do when I'm approached for work in small theatres, I find it very, very difficult to imagine work that I, I think is appropriate for that space. But subtext and inarticulacy in the Olivier ain't worth shit. Mm-mm. Exactly, <laughs> and 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 or or at least it 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 can drown. If yeah. It's not represented in the right way, mm. and and sort of you know lucid clarity and huge kind of uh, you know macrocosmic angle yes. is embarrassing in small theatres, and you know. 
it it's taken me this long to get to know myself as a writer as mm. I get to know myself better as you know just a person and that's something I'm starting to realize and and I'm trying not be ashamed of anymore and go sure. okay that's the sort of thing that I I you know I'm better at and that's yeah. okay yeah because there should be different voices you know? so what made you show somebody liquid or write a play I was I was in I was I was wanting to get in with a crowd really I I or you know the sexiest most interesting people wanted to be actors and directors when I was at yeah. university really yeah. and I wanted you know them to like me or be interested in me <laughs> fundamentally and yeah. I think um I knew that they wanted I knew that they wanted to do a, sh a show that they could apply to go to the NSDF with and at the time I remember them saying you know They'd heard on the grapevine that NSDF were kind of sick of, you know, 20-year-olds playing King Lear, and they wanted <laughs> modern contemporary plays mm. with parts written for people of that age. Mm. And and I said to somebody there, I said to one of the people, um, one of the students, I write, and they said, oh, do you? I said, yeah. And I, mm. that was the first time I'd ever said those words as well, because all my writing is very ha had been up to that point very much about something quite private and quite, mm. um, I, I don't know, negative actually, mm -hmm. I think, and um, expression of having trouble dealing with other things in other ways. Yeah. And that was, and, and after that, when it became a way to make friends with people, that was a, an epiphany for me and has not changed or gone away as a driving motivation. Mm. No, it's still, I think it's a really big motivation in like contemporary professional theatre. I, I yeah. still think I'm writing to hang out with all the yeah. cool, sexy people. Yeah, and I, yeah but, I, and I, but I even would say, like, it, maybe I'm hiding my superficiality here, but I even would say that the most profound, extraordinary relationships and friendships of my life yeah. were created in that environment mm. as sort of creating something together mm. in lieu of, you know, children or anything like that. You kind of, an understanding of, are and creating something as being an incredibly vulnerable thing to do is profound and i think i think turning something that i had thought of as quite private shameful and excremental even which was how i was using writing before mm. into something that could potentially be you know a source of work for people and a source of intimacy you know yes. with people is something quite beautiful was it good fun doing liquid yeah it was really good fun it was really good fun and the performance of it, yeah, in Scarborough, the NSDF wasn't so much. It was quite a... I wasn't prepared. I wasn't part of the theatre society you see at Sheffield or anything. I wasn't really yeah. part of that at mm. all. And I wasn't quite prepared for the intensity of student sort of um, competitive judgment mm. and kind of, I'm in this theatre group and I'm in this theatre group and there's a lot of... Uh, I just, I just was a bit overwhelmed by... They, they all felt quite professional. They all yeah. felt like, well, we will be in professional theatre soon and here's what I think about Brecht and here's what I think about Boal and here's what... And this is not at all... I'm, you know, I'm a well-informed person. This isn't to play myself as being sort of mm. you know, humble or sort of ill-informed. I was surprised by the intensity and the sort of vitriol of how people felt about the work that was on and the... And, and, I didn't really have a view, a view on it. I hadn't realised that my work was bad in some places until it was pointed out to me. And that was just a bit of a baptism of fire. Mm. It's not that I thought it was good. Mm. I just didn't think there was a bad and good. Because, yeah. You didn't have that lexicon or vocabulary not to define... at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. And I, I didn't... 
And I didn't expect that so many people would have built quite such a complicated system of it yeah. in terms of, no, I don't, I, I don't do that. This is what we do here at Exeter, Oxford, or whatever the place was. We do theatre like this. And, yeah. and I was just like, this... I, I, my writing has always been in a shoebox under the bed, yeah. not sort of as a way of engaging with a theatrical practice that has a history. I just... It shocked me. What's fascinating hearing you use the word, the verb, the various forms of the verb to write... Mm. is that you, uh, when you tell the story about sharing liquid for the first time or volunteering mm. to make something for the uh, theatre company, you said, I write, not I'm a writer. Mm. <laughs> and he said, you're talking about my writing. I, I would have it's, been 20. But I mean. it's really interesting. No, but I think it's really interesting how women and men use the verb and the noun differently. Oh, really? And I think the older I get, the more I've come to realise that the, that the point isn't to be a writer, the point is to write. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's just fascinating that you had that from quite an early age, that even if it was an unconscious intuition, that the point was the verb, not the noun. When you go to the NSDF, everybody's really interested in the nouns. They, they want to be an actor, they want to, they, yeah, you know, but maybe. you're just interested in doing the work. How, why did you carry on then after liquid? Uh, why carry you, on? Yeah, why after liquid was such a success? Did, had you then decided you wanted to be a writer, or, or? No, I mean it wasn't. Also, I should say it didn't feel like such a success. I remember, right. I remember that they, I did get a most promising playwright award. There were, this isn't to, again to be falsely modest. There were mm. a number of awards given away, yeah. And I remember even in the giving of the award that someone said, you know, it wasn't a perfect piece of work, but the, the, the appropriate, the operative word is promising. Yeah. And I think that that's true. I think it was a mess and it's a, it's a bizarre sort of short, odd, slight piece that I wrote. But I could do dialogue. And yeah. I think they heard I could do dialogue. And I yeah. think that's one of the unlearnable things. And mm. I think they recognised that and I was grateful for that. Part of the prize of it was going to intern at the Bush Theatre in the literary department for two months over the summer, which I did. And that, you know, in terms of thinking about routes that people get into these professions, because none of my family or friends worked in mm. the arts, it, it took me a long time to even really imagine that there was a, you know, financially possible future in it. Yeah. But it was, re it was being around that place. It was being around the Bush. Mike Bradwell was there at the time and... Mm. Um, that was, you know, fun and chaotic and... So that was, what, 2003, 2000... Yeah, 2002. 2002, yeah. And, no, 2003 maybe, yeah, yeah, three. And I read a lot of plays, and that was what was really defining, and not just the good ones, I would say even more powerfully, the not-so-good ones. Yeah. Because it took a lot for me to want to write a play, and, I th and I'm reading a lot that I thought I could kind of do that. Yeah. gave me a great deal of confidence in just trying to. Yes. So I think a combination of seeing people who were professionally involved in the theatre, never having seen that before, never having mm. been exposed to that before, and reading a lot of stuff that didn't intimidate me. Yeah. Because it was also first early it was also early drafts. I think one really important thing is to remember how much of art we're exposed to at its final point. Yeah. which means that you think, oh, well, I couldn't possibly do that. I couldn't possibly make that movie or yeah. that thing. But actually reading early drafts of things, it makes everything seem much more achievable. Yeah. So that's where that started. And you moved, uh, were you living in London? Did you come to London? Yeah, I got a little... Um, I applied to an ad in Time Out, um, and there were two actors. She was pregnant. She just got pregnant unexpectedly. And they had a tiny flat in Ladbroke Grove. 
and they had this room that they were turning into the nursery tiny room but they said until she had the baby they needed the money and I would rent it for nine months and and, and during this nine months my first nine months in London the room just kept getting more and more crowded with baby things around me every time I would come back from work in various different admin places and until it was like literally there was a mobile above my head and I was like I I have to leave now and the baby was born about a week later so that was kind of a good yeah that was that, that was great the um I uh were you ever an actor? No. You're always somebody who wrote and theatre was accidentally the form yeah. that articulated what you wanted to do. I say. did a little bit at school. I did, like I said, I was sort of often boys in plays. Yeah, um, that's right, yeah. I did a bit of that. I just, I became too <sighs> self-conscious. Puberty particularly, I think. I wasn't very comfortable being looked at. Mm. And I think that was difficult to come back from. And also, I, I think I'm quite a heady person. I, th- I quite... Right. I have trouble with the naturalness and ease and emotional connectedness that I see in really good actors. Yeah. I will go into my head first and I will think quite hard about something first. And yeah. I can't imagine that's good for performance, really. Um, I admire acting very, very much, but I, I certainly don't feel interested in doing it or driven to do it. Um... My, my One of the things that I would kind of say about my memory of you in the mm. Young Writers Programme is I kind of had the hunch after you delivered the sugar syndrome that you'd written it, like, weeks before joining the course. Really? Yeah, because it felt so accomplished. Really? And, yeah, and I thought, ah, oh, she's got this brilliant play and she's looking for a way to get it read at the Royal Court. Oh, my God! <laughs> so she joined the group. That, just wow. To get, just to get an in. But that... It, <laughs> Your reaction is suggesting that's not the case. No, that's so, definitely not the so case. So tell us about the writing. But of the I love syndrome. the idea that she that I was that like manipulatively <laughs> ambitious. That would be amazing. <laughs> no, you wouldn't be the only person. No, I, you, I, no, I would. Def- I would claim that with glory. There were definite people who who came really? who who because <laughs> the with that sitcoms time, they're changed. Into you know, it's a, it was it became within ten years it became a totally changed thing. But in the first few years of the Young Writers Program, we were doing first come first served. Yeah. It wasn't, we, people didn't need to kind of deliver scripts or prove themselves a writer, so people were using all kinds of reasons to get in there. Right. Anyway, but that isn't the case. No. How, what, tell us about the writing, do you remember the writing of the Sugar Syndrome? Do you remember what, how you I, how I you remember the, I remember the romantic memory that I have pretended to have about it, mm. which is that I was, I'd, I'd just moved to work at the National Theatre around the same time yeah. as a secretary in Nick Heitner's admin, yeah, yeah in, in, in the director's um, office mm. at the National which I'd got just from applying to a Guardian advert for it. Mm. And I'd done a lot of secretarial in temping before that. So I would, I would stay afterwards and write a little bit on the computer there into the night because it was such a romantic place to be. My fantasy as a kid was always to be on the bridge of the Enterprise, fundamentally. Mm. That was the idea. I didn't mind whether I was an ensign who got killed or curved. It didn't really matter. I just wanted to be on the bridge. And I think that... Um, and there was something about being in the director's office of the National Theatre, even as I was typing up letters, yeah. that felt like that. And yeah. I liked to be in that environment. Yeah. So I would sometimes write there, and I would write back at the uh, Labrick Grove place. Mm. And then I moved to house sit in Stoke Newington for a lady who worked at the National Theatre, <laughs> but who was going travelling with her husband. And she off- she said, she sent an email around saying, does anyone want to house sit? And so I got, I got lucky there yeah. for a little while. Yeah. Um, I don't remember about it. 
Do you remember how you, was it a play that started with character or with image or with idea? Was idea a... normally I start with. Yeah. I, well, personal experience in character and idea. Mm. I remember being struck one time, and I can't remember how, by how close men's experience with sex is to women's experience with food. And I can't remember why. Oh. It was probably in a relationship. It was probably about being lied to or me lying to somebody about eating or pornography or something. And I remember thinking the way to understand this is about shame and actually how bodily shameful it is. And I'd, I'd struggled with my weight for quite a long time and I'd been sort of obsessed with that. And I thought... There's something in this, there's something in a friendship that sort of one, one person's ashamed of the sex and one person's ashamed of the food. And that was an idea. And then I, I remember that when I was quite young, I was really into computers quite young. Um, we had them all around the house, both my parents worked in IT. So from quite an early age, I was fairly computer literate. And I used mm. to hang around on the first chat rooms um, of MSN and, mm. th and things like that when it was very early days and there was no policing of it. And there was a lot of... There was a lot of seeking out of young girls, of which I was one, right. online to talk to. And I talked to quite a lot of men who wanted to talk to young girls, and I was very interested in that. And, yeah. of course, we think of that now as being incredibly dangerous and sort of, uh, you know, predatory, and it is all those things. But from my experience of being a sort of 13-year-old or 14-year-old out in the world, my experience of men was either they ignored me and were cruel to me, or they were predatory and frightening. Um, and actually, choosing when you were going to talk to them, how you were going to talk to them, and having the power to completely cut off talking to them at any point you wanted, was quite a, actually quite a shift in those power dynamics for a 13 or 14 year old girl. I didn't mm. feel in any way mm. threatened or endangered. I was actually quite curious and judgmental, but curious mostly. Mm. And it actually felt very, it, it, it feels like a strange place to, to, to be looking at the di power dynamics and finding them problematic for me, because mm. it was actually very interesting for me. Anyway, so during that time, I had a little experience of speaking to quite a lot of those men, and that stayed with me. And so when I was going to write, I thought, I'd quite like to think about those men again and how they would be feeling now and where they would be. Mm. And an unlikely, you know, and, and, and I was aware in film, you know, of the history of the unlikely friendship narrative, and I thought... There's an unlikely friendship story here, maybe. <laughs> and that, I mean, it's a combination of those things, I suppose. How long did it take you to write? Do you remember? Or was it two, I mean, it's ten, more than ten years ago now? Yeah, I can't, to be honest, I can't really remember. I remember, yeah. I remember being very grateful for the programme because I remember thinking there were many times during it where I thought there's no way I would write this unless, you know, you I, unless we had work. to, and yeah, Literally unless we had to give it in, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember a few times also thinking there's no way I would write this because it's too exposing. Or... Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, so I was very grateful for yeah. Yeah, the programme for doing that. But no, truthfully, I can't remember. Certainly a matter of months, I would imagine. Mm. Yeah. The, um, the, talking about being a matter of months, mm. it, it can't have been that long between you handing it in at the end of the course, we read it, 
in my memory, which is probably inaccurate, we kind of rushed it upstairs. Across, we ran across the alleyway, clutching a so script in the pre-email days, certainly working with Graham Wybrook, <laughs> yeah, who yeah, was yeah. then the literary manager of the Royal Court. There's no way he would have read an email. Mm. Running up to the fifth floor and saying, Graham, we've found one! <laughs> That's really true. <laughs> probably not quite true. But it was a fast turnaround from was delivery it? to production. Well, see, I, I, had, I had no... You see, it's difficult to remember because my, the me at that stage had no... Um, reference point for any of this. Yeah. It would not. This is going to sound ridiculous, but it, it didn't even occur to me that that happened that you've just described. Mm. I had no real reference point for how long was normal or what was happening really. I sort of, the first time I remember you telling me you were really interested in putting it on. I remember thinking, uh, they probably say that to everyone. That's not true. Like, <laughs> I really remember thinking that quite strongly yeah. because I didn't really have any frame of reference for that. Yeah, but. Certainly, it was it was on in the it was on in the winter autumn of two thousand and three. Yeah. So it must have been very quick. It, yeah. What do you um. With your self, with your description of yourself as, uh, having this confidence that might have even belied an, in an in an uncertainty. Did that confidence survive through the rehearsal period? It was Marianne Elliott directing. Yeah, Marianne. Who's a beautiful director, yeah. and I've worked with her loads of times. I know. Um, Will Ash. Yeah. Uh, how did you find rehearsal? I mean, was that your first experience of professional production? How was that for you? I have very little memory of it, to yeah. be honest, um, which is strange. I, I think I only did first week and last week of it that I was present for. Yeah. And I remember in the first week, I remember... I remember... I was still living at Labrick Grove then in mm -hmm. this place. Mm -hmm. And I remember the walk from there to the court every morning for rehearsals was over the Kensington Park Gardens, maybe. And I remember every day walking that walk going, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. I'm walking from Labbert Grove, sort of Notting Hill, over Kensington Palace Gardens to like Sloan Square where I'm rehearsing my play, every, I remember so clearly every morning being unbelievably grateful and excited by it. And then I, I vaguely remember the room and sometimes and I'm being asked quite a lot of questions about the play and being quite honest about that. Mm. And, but I, I remember, I, mostly I just sort of remember being very impressed with Marianne and sort of inspired by her. Mm. And that's, that's, that's kind of all I remember, weirdly. Mm. And then I remember a few of the shows of it, and I remember being incredibly tense in, in audiences. That's what I remember. Nothing to do with the production. I've, I've never changed that. That's always been the case. I've always ha I have a great deal of trouble in audiences. When you're watching your own work? Yeah. Or just in general? Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in general a little bit. No, it's funny, actually, you say that, because, yeah, when I first started going to the theatre properly, which probably wasn't until university and after, Yeah. I did actually find it quite difficult to be in an audience because yeah. I didn't really have much of a much of a experience of it, yeah. and I found it very. I felt very nervous for everybody all the time, <laughs> and you know, actors. I would just be sitting there going, oh, "I hope you do well. I hope you do." You know, like some people find stand up. Yeah. You know, like they come on, they're like, oh, "Oh, I just I want you to be okay." Yeah. And I would do, and it was very. And it's funny. I've, I now don't feel that at all when I watch theatre, but I still yeah. feel it massively when I watch my own stuff. I yeah. feel incredible anxiety throughout. It was a huge success. I mean, my memory of it, again, our memories are unreliable, but it, was, it felt like a success. You won the TMA Critics Circle Award, is that right? Like confusing two awards there together? I think I won. You won, you won like shit George Devine Awards. Award. You won the George Devine Award, yeah? Oh, yes, and you did win Critics Circle Award as well. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was a huge amount of heat about the play and about you. And then it was, my memory of that was that it was particularly gendered. I remember, really? I remember, I, uh, remember, I remember reading an interview with you in, in the Evening Standard, I think it might oh, have been. Oh, yeah. Even, and the headline of the interview was A Pretty Pinter. That's right. And I remember thinking, that is outrageous on every possible level of sub-editing. Not least to Pinter, to <laughs> be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I'd written I mean, one mediocre play upstairs at the course. Yeah, but not, not, on, not, not only because... Uh, 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 I don't think the play's mediocre, but, but what it's definitely not is linguistically in any sense indebted to Pinter. No, not in any sense. <laughs> no, we just talked language. about yeah. how you are a writer who completes her paragraphs, let alone, <laughs> <laughs> let alone her words. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. So, I mean, what was that like to be the Arve? I remember Ella Hickson talking to me one time about she had to do an interview for one of her plays. She went to do the interview and they were going to take a photograph, which yeah. is normal in interviews, yeah. but they brought a dress, a dress for her. Oh, they always work. did for me. They always did, pretty much, yeah. And they never fitted as well, so you'd have to go through the... Pro- because they'd bring them in model sizes. And so you'd go through the process of trying to zip up something that didn't fit before you... Or after you'd had an interview, which is quite, uh, you know, problematic for your self-esteem. And also just fucking outrageous. But you know what? The, my principal feeling about that yeah. is, yes, it's fucking outrageous. And yes, I see that now as a woman in her 30s and politically aware. I think, I think the most upsetting thing, I suppose, is more that... I felt very, I feel very, and I felt very guilty about it. I felt very shamed about it because I, well, because part of why you write, I think, I say you when I mean me, I suppose, Mm. is because there's something to do with your corporeal self that is problematic and you want to produce something outside of yourself that has a voice that's purely true from within you that... You know, to, to write something down on a piece of paper rather than say it kind of implies that the you saying it is problematic in some way. Yes, good. And so I think that when you're then asked to represent yourself, you know, as, as you are in interviews, not in plays, not in novels, but in interviews with your corporeal self, which is, and talk, which is the entire reason that you started writing to get away from that. Yeah. It's a very, very complicated thing that starts to happen because it's all the things I don't like about myself or that I have problems with, were there in the interview and the image. And they're not there in the writing. The writing is a true representation of something that this is getting in the way of, you know. And so so all the things that I've been trying to get away with in my writing were made incredibly explicit back at me in the interview, you see. And, and, And the image of the interview, and the picture was always bigger than the article, you know. And that's not because... You know, it's all happens with all female playwrights. It's the thing of let's 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 splash a you know bigger picture, particularly when they're in their twenties, because we will. As, you know, and, and and actually that isn't that forces quite a lot of stuff that's problematic at you, and mm. it, it it doesn't feel good. It feels complicated, and 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 add add to that the fact I then sort of disappeared slightly into TV for a while, which treats which doesn't treat writers with the same kind of respect and reverence that theatre does, and I I spent quite a long time. Feeling a lot of, you know, I felt guilty for putting those dresses on. I felt ashamed of uh, being described in that way as a pretty pinter. Because I read the article and I went, you dick. I mm. did, about mm. me. And I wasn't even the one saying that headline, you know. So it caused quite a lot of... I'm not, I'm not politically complaining. I, what I'm saying is my, my choice to partake in those things... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm generous to my younger self now a little bit, but at the time I wasn't at all. I was confused by it and, you know, not happy about it. It's, uh, 
your relationship to your confidence is really fascinating. <laughs> it's really fascinating <laughs> because you, ta- you, you talk with such wit and clarity and lucidity and articulacy and confidence about how unconfident you are. <laughs> kind of ama- amazing kind of paradox. But um, one of the one of the kind of narrative tropes that I identified in my time at the Young Writers Programme and since is the phenomenon of a young female playwright, normally with young female playwrights, young male playwrights, they tend to be less splashy about, they tend to be more oh. reserved about mm. um, the way uh, certain, the way, uh, uh, what's he called? The fucker who used to write for The Telegraph, Charlie Spencer. Mm. The way he would write about young female playwrights uh, was, 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 I thought, vile in all kind of levels, but also it didn't allow the writers then the space to fuck up with their next play or to kind of, you know, or right. explore or learn the craft. Sugar Syndrome was literally your second play yeah. and it took you a, a good while to write the next one. Oh, a long time, yeah. And I'm, to be honest, I'm going through the same thing again right now. I'm going right. through the same process. It's, I don't think it's entirely fair to make that about uh, response. I think, yeah. I think there's certainly issues of my own with my rhythm of writing, with my psychology that are completely unconnected to, to what we've just described. Like, I'm not going to blame yep. Charlie Spencer for how long it took to write anyone. Um, right. Do you uh, mind if I do? <laughs> I love you do. You, you do, I look great. So can we, can we have you do that? Yeah, then? I blame Charlie Spencer. <laughs> Charlie Spencer yeah, right. for that. Right. Um, yeah. No, I, I, but I, th- I, th- I think there's other issues at play there that I, I'm, you know, will... I will wait a very, very, very long time before writing a next thing for theatre and it's happening again now and it's getting to the point where I'm feeling so bad about it that I have to produce something. Yeah, there's a self-sabotage at play, but that tends to seems to work, so I'm not... It's really interesting. When I think about my work, mm. I, there'd be some habits I'd have as a writer that I'd feel really guilty about and then I'd look at the fact that the habits, which were normally about procrastination... Yeah would end up in quite a high turnover of work. Oh, really? So I'd just be like, oh, I haven't done anything today. I've not done anything today. I've just All I've done is just fucking sit and look at the internet and read books and mm. just kind of waste time, mm. uh, make compilation CDs. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, but I seem to have written two plays this year, so yes. probably it works. Yeah, probably it works, exactly. Don't <laughs> so maybe the same for you, the shame. Yeah. To be fair, Simon, <laughs> to be fair, I don't think anyone could accuse you of being unprolific. I mean, no, but what I he's don't, literally what, writing a play during this interview. But what, <laughs> what I don't do is write really in other forms. You know, I've not written successfully in television. I've not written successfully in film. I've written a bit of radio, but you've written successfully in television. I've done some television, yeah. I've done some. I've I've done some film that's never been made. I've done some gaming. Secret Diary of a Call Girl was a huge television series. Mm Um, that you were the lead writer on for the first two series, or the yeah, I, I left during the second series because I wasn't happy with the choices being made. But yeah, how was it working on that? Baptism of Fire again. Right. I have this, I have this tendency to do things before I'm ready to do them, and then sort of that could go well or not, mm. you know. And in, in mm. Secret I was, it was a really good thing came out of it, which was my close friendship creatively and socially with Billy, who's one of my with close friends, Billy Piper, who played the lead in that, and yeah. later in The Effect as well. Yeah, yeah, and mm. she's in Yerma at the moment, um, which I'm seeing tonight. And oh, she's, yes. yeah, she's fantastic, and she's a real inspiration to me as a person and as an actor, and that was a really good thing that came out of it. But I, I had, again, I had no frame of reference for television, really, and how it worked. Mm. I 
I loved the blog that I read that the show was based on, mm. and I went to a television company, and they said, "We've actually bought the rights for this book to the book of it. We want you to make it." But I was, I was in my early twenties. I didn't know how. I didn't. I didn't have the level of power that a showrunner really should have, and I also probably, even if I had, would not have had the competence to yeah. deliver what I actually wanted it to be. Having yeah. said all of that. It was originally for Channel 4. Channel 4 eventually decided they didn't want to do it. Went to ITV, then to ITV2. ITV2's whole remit was to be as sort of frothy and silly as possible. It was yeah. totally the wrong channel for that subject matter. Yeah. And, you know, we were forced... or Well, not forced, but we were, we were pushed very, very strongly to do a particular kind of show in half hour with a break. Originally, I wanted it to be hour-long drama. Yeah. It just... It could not have been more undermining of what my original intention was, really, with the show. Which was to consider seriously the Consider seriously the, the echelon of, of, of sex work at that level, which had not really been written about before. Yeah. And I met with, you know, dozens and dozens of women who are escorts, and I interviewed them extremely deeply, and I spent a lot of time with them also. So she, and I, you know, I, I do my research. There's one thing you can't not say about my work. Yeah. And it was not... I was not able to express what I wanted to express with it and yeah. yet I had no I didn't I didn't have the capacity until it was too late to realise what was happening and right. once that happened I decided I just you know without without being negative or, or horrible or wanting to ruin anyone else's experience I just decided it wasn't I didn't want to work on it it mm. wasn't a show that I was you know able to work on and so that's what happened it wasn't acrimonious really mm. it was it was it was business but I didn't I didn't really want to be, you know, in something that you could describe as business. You know, I wanted to yeah. sort of be... Uh, I should have been discovering myself as an artist and doing more plays and saying yes to things. I should, you know, that would have maybe been a more interesting choice for me. In that trajectory of uh, Lucy Preble discovering herself as an artist, where does writing for the gaming industry sit? That happened only quite late, actually, right. in the last couple of years. Right. Um... Game is something I've always been really passionate about, just as a player. Yeah. And I was writing a column for The Observer about technology, which came about because I originally wrote a big article for them about video games being an art form, and that went quite well. That was quite viral online for a while. Back in back before, that was kind of received wisdom uh, a few years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I got, I got, they asked me if I wanted to do a column after that. And I was really excited about that because journal, you know, prose is easy for me with clarity, easier, far yeah. easier for me because, it, it, you know, it, it speaks well to clarity. And the idea of being, the idea of writing journalistically, I found very exciting. So I did those. And then I, I it attracted the attention of some Americans who were working on games and they approached my American agent and said, would I be interested? And I said, yes. So I went over to the West Coast and did some work there. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. It's incredibly stressful and bizarre and strange and couldn't be more the opposite of theatre in that the writers brought on last, you know. The most important thing is the design, mission design, animation. And then, you know, obviously it's not true that always the writers brought on last, but particularly in the very, very big, what they call AAA games, for a long time that's been the tradition. And um, I just love the collaborative nature of it. Yeah. I love the fact that actually you're quite in the mix and you're not very vaunted and important and sort of... You're kind of responding every day to their... So someone comes in and says, I've got this great idea for a mission design that, you know, basically, I don't know where it is, but you go down somewhere and then, you know, these things fall from above and you have to avoid like this. And someone else's passion 
invites your passion and you go okay well what if it was a you know and then you say what if it was an underground water castle or something you know and you get to be incredibly creative and then somebody goes and designs that and shows it to you and play it and it's very moving and my childhood was spent quite a lot with books and video games so I I have a very romantic relationship with both I know not everybody has that collaboration I always I'm always in awe of that when I see technical rehearsals in the theatre and you kind of watch a sound designer or a lighting designer, or not even the designers, the people rigging the lights. Oh, totally. I'm the same. Working for hours up ladders mm-hmm. to make something that you've imagined in your head an actual reality in a room. It's, it's so it's inspiring, isn't it? Inspiring. It's, it's the, the adoration of craft. It's yeah. like, you know, like the DP is always, to me, the most interesting person on a film set. Because yeah. you're always like, look, they can do everything with their hands. It's amazing. <laughs> um, tell me about Enron, how that started. I had a meeting with Ben Power who'd just taken over Oxford Stage Company and they turned into Headlong. And I was just rather bruised coming out of the television experience of Secret Diary. And what I needed more than anything in the world was Ben Powell. And I know that now. We all kind of need Ben Powell. We all kind of need Ben Powell, exactly. Deputy Artistic Director of the National Theatre. Exactly, for good reason. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and he, you know, we had, a, we had a cup of tea and he said, he said, well, we'd, we'd, you know, I can't really describe what Headlong is, but it's sort of like we're looking for kind of, we're looking for kind of big idea-filled plays, you know, really strong gesture and all of that. And, mm. and, and I sort of said, oh, I haven't really got anything like that. I mean, I have this one thing I really want to do, which is kind of like a musical based about corporate finance. Anyway, that's exactly <laughs> what I just said. Like, that's, that could not be more what we want to do. And, and I said, oh, have you ever heard of Enron? I think he said, oh, I don't think so. And I said, oh, let me write you down something. Yeah. And I, I, wrote, I remember I wrote down like a two-page document about... Enron and I was passionate about it. Why were you passionate about it? What was where did your passion come from? I remember reading about it in the final year of university. Yeah. I just remember thinking it was so tragic and biblical and sort of in the final year I was at university, Fastow, who was the chief financial officer, was testifying against his boss Jeffrey Skilling in court. And I remember it was in the paper. And I remember just as I read about it, I was like, oh, that is so Shakespearean, that mm. thing of it's not kings, but it's the equivalent of kings. And yeah. this person that he hired and, you know, dragged up and supported and loved and shared secrets with eventually kind of turns on him. Yes. And, and I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's our modern... I thought, <laughs> that's our modern day Shakespeare, that yeah. sort of story, and then didn't think much more about it. Until, until then, until, until later, and I just... My, a lot of the people I went to university with sort of glibly took jobs in consultancy. It was, like, expected that you might go to work for PwC mm. or go to the Anderson Consulting Meeting. Mm-hmm. And both my siblings worked as consultants at the time. And, um, excuse me. No. <coughs> and I, I, I was very interested in these quite... in the quite radical nature of the politics that went on at university and studentdom and the very different reality of life that came after that for a yeah. lot of people. Mm. It seemed odd to me. And so I always knew I wanted to write about business because it was something that was absolutely everywhere and no one really spoke about, corporate finance particularly. Mm. And I've always been drawn to subject matter that is elephant in the roomy, that is sort of absolutely yeah. everywhere but not really explained or discussed. And yeah. I'm pre... I mean, we, we forget maybe, but you know that was... Before 2003, paedophilia was a bit like that. Yes. And before, you know, 2009, obviously before, before the credit crunch, yeah. finance and business was a bit like that. It was sort of something that a lot of people we knew worked in, but nobody could really explain what they did. 
and it's stuff like that including that gets the people who work and as soon as something's like that I get massively massively interested the um, uh, the process of making it of writing it with Ben with Rupert Gould who oh. directed it was that freeing in comparison to the idea of writing a studio play or it was freeing in comparison to writing the television that I'd just written. Right. I was getting a lot of offers after Secret Diary to do anything about sex, particularly yeah. women having sex. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, you know, in the way that you do after you've done something, you get a lot of offers to do the same thing. Mm. And what, what I really enjoyed about Enron was how much it was so much more like me. Yeah, great. Actually, I'm fascinated by corporate finance. And yeah. I'm, <laughs> you know, really into that. And it wouldn't necessarily be something that someone would guess off the back yes. of the work that I had done so far. And that's something I've tried to keep learning over and over again, is to keep going back to that thing of, actually, what do I really like? Because I think the, th the mistake people make about early success is they sort of think that you get very scared and inward-looking and, like, how will I ever, like, recapture the success I had? And I don't think it's ever been like that, really, with early success. I think, you, do, you know, you all, I, I've always gone, oh, that's nice I had that success, that's good, it doesn't really trouble me. Yeah. What the real thing is, is that you get offered a lot of stuff that you don't know whether to do or not, and you take ba make bad decisions about it, and that's what keeps you away. Mm. And actually, if you don't get offered a lot of stuff, you just do the thing you're interested in, naturally. And yeah, that's a much better choice. And harder to hold on to if you're successful and you're, and you're battered. With... Almost impossible, and yeah. that, sounds, that sounds terrible, but I don't mean like when you're young, when you're really young and you don't, haven't learned that lesson yet, yeah. you think, well, this person's offering me money and structure. Yeah, of course great. I'll go towards <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. And, and I can artistically you know, express myself within that. Mm. But the truth is that often you can't and that, and, and that that very structure is trapping and that very finance is trapping and and really the, the, really the right thing to do is every time to ask myself, what am I actually interested in? Because that's always gone quite well before. The, um, I'm, you, you, you've mentioned this already, but I'm fascinated by your relationship to research. Mm -hmm. Of all the writers I've talked to about their writing, you're, you are the biggest researcher, I think. Oh, yeah. It's important to you, isn't it? It's a big part of your work. Oh, yeah, it's massively important to me, yeah. How do you do it? What do you do? How did you research Enron? Make it more specific. I, I read absolutely everything that I could get my hands on about it. And that's online, that's in print, that's, you know, I, I, I read tens of books. I mean, I'd go, yeah, probably 50 books, maybe more articles. I mean, every single thing, every day, for months. During that process, it's, imp it's impossible to not get connections to people who's, who are alive, obviously, because who, people who wrote books and stuff like that, so I would reach out to them yeah. and occasionally um, interview people. I chose, I chose very specifically not to contact the protagonist that mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to feature because I just thought, I know I want to do something vaudevillian and cartoony, mm -hmm. and I don't think that would help me with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do massive amounts of drafts as well, which is sort of a way of layering... The research. So what do you do with the tens of books? Are you making notes on the books that you're Every reading? book I'm making notes on. So how many notes do you end up with? What I do is I, I make notes on books often and then what I'll do is read the notes into, and condense those notes into one single book, a small exercise book. And then I will put, throw everything else away and I will only work from the one exercise book that's wow. a condensed version of the notes that I made from the original books. 
And that's the only book I will ever allow myself pretty much to look at again, unless I absolutely need to discover a certain detail for a scene sure. where someone says, you know, this deal is worth this much or something. Yeah. But, ever, but, but, but my theory behind that is I will have noted everything that was interesting in any of the books, and then I will have noticed everything that's interesting about what's interesting, mm. and then I will have that, and that will be... And there's something in that concentric thing that excites me, you know, in, the, in, the, in like the manner of a hurricane, that in the centre there will be an answer of stillness, and that will be the play. And that is... And then, and then I will, and then I will never look at the book after a turn. That's so fascinating. Where do you work? Now I work mostly in my office, in my house. So you, uh, the office is in the house. Yes, yeah. upstairs. Yeah. But I, I have found myself. I started to work more while I'm walking. I started to do. My best ideas are always in motion. Do so you record actually, them now? Yeah, do you do now. I, now voice I use memo? exactly. I use yeah. voice memo now, which I never did before, and that's really helped me. It's really helped me to sound less written, I think. And trans and what you, what will you put into your voice memo dialogue? Yeah, like a little. Yeah, exactly. I'll be talking as if I'm a character. Something will occur to me in a scene, and I'll 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 start talking into it, and I'll think that's a good little line, or that's a nice moment. And uh, and what what else, what have you got in your office apart from? You write on computer. Do you write on computer? Yeah, I have a really nice big iMac that I I like the I like how it looks. It looks like a portal. I like that. <laughs> like the Starship Enterprise again. Exactly. You're on the. You're <laughs> I, just, I just want to go into space, Simon. Why don't you want to let me go into space? I have to keep writing these fucking. But you write. Plays. But your notes you make in notebooks. Your notes in the yes. exercise books or an Enron you did. Yes, I would. Yeah. I could, I'd never write notes on computer. Yeah, that right. would feel very cold to me. You need the physical contact of a pen touching paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For that for that period, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a montage of something. Yeah. The um does your uh uh going back briefly to Enron, mm. the phenomenal success of that. Yeah. Your stories your kind of story as a playwright is is years of agony and uncertainty crystallised into <laughs> glorious success. <laughs> in every play you've written has won like shitloads of awards. <laughs> the, thing, the, the joke is that I'm only going to do plays once. Yeah. I'm only going to do plays once. Yeah. It's just going to be all killer, no filler. I remember That's David, my... David Gregg saying exactly the same thing about David Harrower. Oh, yeah. He's only Harrow, fucking like... written three plays and they're like masterpieces. I had a chat. I really respect Harrower. Yeah, do you know what? I had, a t- I, had a, yeah, I had a coffee with him once and I thought there's something very recognisable here. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it was, but certainly, he, yeah, that, that manner of work. I don't really like it. What I'm, I understand that the right thing to do is to write as many plays as possible <laughs> and the, to make yourself better and learning from each one. Cerebrally, I completely understand that and I would mm. advise any writer to do that. However, I don't do that. My practice is every time, Lucy, it's got to be the play about everything. Every yeah. time, it's got to be the best thing and it's got to mean everything to you and it's, your whole life at that moment has got to be in it. And it's only through that ridiculous and you know childish pressure that I do anything. <laughs> But how did you feel about the success of Enron? I mean, what was that? Um, having had six, because I remember talking to you in between Enron and the Sugar Syndrome. I think around the time that you were writing Secret Diary of a Call oh, Girl, yeah. and and you saying that you were finding writing for theatre difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that was, <laughs> and I remember kind of think, you know, I always whenever a student or somebody I think I'd think of as having had a student teacher relationship with is kind of expressing uncertainty also always brings out the teacher slash father in me well, that's not and I just want to go right what can we do how can, how we, can help we help you? Oh, bless but, you for that. but then but then um you know the, the then after those five years in between Enron is plays in it for a year in the West End yeah I mean that was that exciting was it exhilarating confusing oh, it was amazingly exciting it was amazingly yeah. exciting and it it was I'm glad that happened then rather than earlier certainly because 
there were so many things, you know, um, about that that were great. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought that the timing of it was fortuitous, you yeah. know, for, for the play, you know, in the... And that actually allowed me a great deal of joyous freedom because I didn't feel like... I didn't feel like I was a massive imposter for having had a success. I could sort of... Yeah. I could sort of spread it to be like, well, this is a cultural event that's much bigger than me, and mm-hmm. it's to do with the cast who are wonderful and brilliant, yeah. and a director which is you know incredibly talented and important, and you know it's it it felt genuinely like a completely collaborative, even though I'm I'm very you know conscious of the fact that I wrote it, I'm yeah. not you know yeah. belittling my role in it, but it felt like an event, and that felt a bit bigger than me, and actually that made it very very easy to enjoy, like a party, yeah. rather than like a sort of a piece of homework or an albatross around my neck or anything. So yeah. I, I, it was very, it was fundamentally, yeah, very I positive. I felt exactly the same way about Curious Incident. Did you? Because, yeah, because it was Mark's novel. Right, and, there you and go. And Marianne was just as authorial as I was. Right. So actually, what I never, you know, sometimes watching my plays, I can sit with in agony and yeah. uncertainty with Curious. I just thought, I've got so many great <laughs> creative people around me. I just typed it out. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I get to, I'm, I'm somehow part of the party yeah. too. And yet I was also so, I was young enough to be incredibly sort of excited by every element of it as yeah. well. Like, every time I went into town for like a year, there yeah. was a place I could go yeah. to use the loo. Like, any time I went in the <laughs> middle of like the West End, or to like see people and go, hi, how are you? And chat to the box office people and chat. Yeah. It felt like a home. Yeah. And that was very defining for me, that idea of creating something that means that you can share a space with people who, uh, and have a relationship with, I don't know, that, that uh, compared to the loneliness of writing, having that on was very glorious for me. And uh, the other thing I remember about, I remember the first night of Curious in the West End, walking out to Shaftesbury Avenue. Yeah. And there were shitloads of people there. It's yeah. not like when you've got to play in the Royal Court Theatre upstairs and it's empty within five minutes mm. and then yeah, everybody's in the bar and you know everybody anyway. Yeah. So it's all working theatre together. With the West with the West End show, it's you're reaching hundreds of people. Mm. And the, the writer in you, mm. who's drawn to writing in paragraphs and articulating big ideas with big reach, mm. that must have been quite thrilling that you were really affecting people. Yeah. You are you you know I think you're a writer who's born to write for big stages and and you were writing for a big stage yeah. and it was a big stage of I don't know how many people saw that over the course of a that year been, yeah. nearly a million people probably. Maybe yeah. That's quite fun isn't it? It's amazing. It's Broadway yeah. was different. <laughs> Broadway was different. Why Broadway was that? Was what was that? Oh, that we could do a whole podcast. Okay, cool. Maybe <laughs> we've got <laughs> producer Anushka, the temporary producer Anushka, is telling us we've got. I'm, I'm going to ignore the five minutes. It's too much fun doing this. <laughs> She's miming She's instead of night. talking now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, uh, well, we don't need to talk. We don't need. I'm to happy to. No, no. Failure's brilliant. Failure's in- more interesting. I think it's. It was. Um, yeah, it was very complicated and beautiful in its own way. Like, but it was very clear early on that it wasn't working. Mm. Um, a woman died in the aisle on the first preview, I think, oh. and it was a real harbinger. It was terrible. And I remember it's a very old lady. The Broadway audiences are particularly older, yeah. I'm sure. And um, yeah. this lady collapsed and vomited in the aisle. She's very old, and all obviously all of the ushers came, and it was it was very difficult and and. Horrible, and I remember, I remember a woman stepping over her and going, "How long will this be delayed?" You know, and it was very, 
it was an atmosphere that I, and that's not, that's in no way negative about Broadway in general, but it was a real moment of like, oh, this isn't, this is bad, there's something bad going to happen. And it did, and, and it was bad, but it was a really, really beautiful, wonderful cast. It was very mm. close and intimate, you know, it, it was meaningful as an experience, and I was incredibly fortunate to spend that time in New York working as an artist, mm. and I, you know, it was a big lesson to me, and a play is not really complete until the audience are there. And the, in a way that a relationship, you can't say that, you know, hey, he's a really nice guy, you know, in one relationship. It might be awful in another relationship. And the play with that audience was not a very good play. Right. And I don't, def- I, don't, I don't buy that whole thing of Americans didn't want to laugh at themselves. I th- or, you know, were, were, would, you know there, there was, there's an element of them being... Mm. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know the the US audiences don't don't like to be attacked, and the play viscerally does finger wag. Mm. I mean, literally the last the last soliloquy is, I mean, is a finger wagging thing by Skilling. Yeah. And British people do quite like that. We have the we have the masochism about us. Yeah. And Americans hate it, but that wasn't the story. The story really was that the combination of the audience and the play made a a not good artistic experience, creative yeah. experience, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, it was I'm an English writer was writing about America, and that has a for a British audience, and that has a huge number of very subtle things happening in it that yes. I couldn't possibly predict. That in America, you know, to, to, to New York audiences, they're not Texas. They couldn't be further from Texas. Mm. And the idea that we'd sort of represented that as America, to them is so gauche. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. And understandably so. I saw, I see so much stuff about Brexit on US news now, when they're talking about recent political events, and they always get it just a bit wrong. You know, they're describing Boris Johnson or Gove or Theresa May, and you're like, no, 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 no. There's so much you're not getting about how we are as British people and what the class implication is and what the education implication is that we have an understanding of. And it's not their fault, but it's just like, it's just a bit off. And I imagine that's how Emma would have seen to an American audience. And understandably so. The effect is a very different play to yeah. Enron. It's my favourite. It's my favourite as well. Why is it your favourite? It's just the most truthful play I've ever written. Right. In what sense? It's the first time... It's the first time that I really wrote vulnerably about myself. In The Sugar Syndrome, I was vulnerable, but I was sort of writing about a younger version of myself when I was writing. Mm. And I think that was the first time I was sort of present tense, very vulnerable. And I think that was a big lesson for me in what I need to do as a writer. Those exercise book things you wrote about your parents as a child, kind of like saying the things they didn't say, uh-huh. you were saying that and putting it yeah. drawing from yourself. I suppose so, yeah. yeah. Was it a frightening play to write? Yes, terrifying. Yes. I remember you saying years ago that you, you write in areas, you look at things that frighten you, and what was frightening you was what it is to love or be loved or feel or the relationship between neurology and behaviour. Yeah, and I think fundamentally the idea that love isn't really real, really, and what we mean by real and the darkness of that, but also, you know, on a a, a more heady level, on a more cerebral level, the notion that, you know, we, we will persuade ourselves of anything to stay alive and to keep ourselves in a good view. And that's how we, and that, that's what sanity is to some extent. And if sanity is maintaining a good view of yourself, you know, and once you know that, it's very hard to, it's very hard to have much respect for yourself after that, you know, because you, 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 you can live a life of, 
you can live a life of constantly challenging yourself, but then you kind of negate yourself. You, then you're like, well, I can't make any decisions because every decision I make is probably fundamentally in some way f- my self-interest framed in a different way. You yeah. know? And if that's true, then how depressing. You know? When you were writing that, were you writing it for Billy? Yeah, I had Billy in mind. I was that John Doe in mind. Did you? Tom. Yeah, I yeah. did, I did. I, they were friends, they were people I knew or, or had worked with before and I found that, again, hugely helpful and comforting. Yeah. It felt like being part of something. Yeah. Like that theatre in the West End or that bridge on that starship, it felt like these are people who I will be around and they will help me and we will help each other. Mm. And that helped me a great deal. Mm. Did you, was your writing process different for that than... For Enron, it was a similar kind of process of distilling massive research and. and it was very similar, actually. Yeah. Um, it was it it was very similar. Uh, it was shorter though, which mm. maybe is a good thing. Yeah. And um, and I threw the books away slightly earlier. <laughs> so yeah. The um. Do you read? You you you've already mentioned that you read your own plays. You talked about the experience of reading back over your own plays. I certainly don't do it by choice. I probably had to do it for the publication of a right. of a book of a collection or something. Have you got plays one out? It's plays one out. No, it was probably it was in a royal court sort of right, place right, or something. Right. No, I don't have plays one. No. Do you enjoy? Did you enjoy the experience of reading? No, I found it very painful. Uh, no, that's not true. There were a couple of lines in the Sugar Syndrome that I laughed out loud at, which I was shocked <laughs> by, and I have no memory of writing whatsoever. Mm. Do you find your Do you find uh, yourself noticing or identifying returning patterns or ideas or images in those four plays that you've written? Do you go, oh look, I seem to be writing like with my plays. Fundamentally, yeah. I think I'm writing a completely new thing each time. Do you? And then I realise normally in about the first week of rehearsal that I'm just writing about my dead dad. <laughs> 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 is that the title you're going with? Yeah, the it's next just that's my, you know, the, the, my my, the, the next diary is going to be called My Dead <laughs> Dad, definitely. But, um, uh, you know, a joke. Yeah, <laughs> I'm no, a carver a joke, but there's something in it, you know, that oh, we, absolutely we return is. to try to complete interruptions. Uh, do you notice that in your own work? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I've come to notice it more as yeah. I get older and I get to know myself more. And I, you know, now I, yeah. Which I'm not sure is a totally good thing, to be honest. Um, there's no doubt whatsoever that I'm drawn to the theme of illusion in my plays. There's of no doubt. Illusion. Illusion, yeah. Um, yeah. That features strongly throughout. And work as well. I, I rarely write family plays. I do right. sometimes, or, 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 or television or anything. I, I, I mostly write sort of workplace-based stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, mm. I, try, I try not to think about it too much. Um, the illusion I'm thinking about illusion thinking about the illusion that the internet allows us to create for ourselves when we create avatars the illusion of the market absolutely completely the illusion of Enron and and the illusion of what it is to love and when when an emotion is artificially created or actually felt that's a fascinating observation Um, and I'm writing right now about the golden age of magic which you don't have to stretch very far to see how it features there yeah Um, and high and and also duplicity hiding, um, yeah, yeah, and connections, emotional connections between people that aren't that are that are unusual or sort of on a slant, um, yeah. So you know, I suppose yeah, I suppose you know, stemming from the sugar syndrome, the kind of unlikely friendship, and you know, with mm. Skilling and Fastow and Enron, that's 
you know, that's really what the where any heart of that play exists mm. really is between these two men, one of whom sort of adores the other and then betrays him. Um, so, yeah, there's a you know there's a lot of that about. Who are you writing for? It's different every time. Do you have an imaginary audience? One person normally, and it's a gift to them. That's the idea. It doesn't have to be alive. Doesn't have to be known even to me, but. You know, a bit like that advice you get on radio where you, just, you speak to one listener, you know, that's the key apparently of being a good DJ. Mm. And I think for writing, that's probably the same. Because I think if I think about a lot of people watching anything, I become actually quite diffuse in and of myself and wanting to please all of those people, which makes you very dull, I think. Yeah. So. The, uh... Who are you writing for? I think I'm writing for myself. I think the answer often, but I, uh, I think the answer instinctively wanted to give is that I write the plays that I wish other people had written, so that I could yeah. go and watch them because I really like going to the theatre. I really a like great the experience idea. to go to the theatre, and I just I wish somebody else, I wish somebody had written a play about a rock star, a deranged rock star, uh, a megalomaniac, and, and nobody had, so I wrote one. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, I write often to test actors as well. So, you know, uh, an actor like Andrew Scott, an actor like Matt Smith, an actor like Lin uh, Leslie Sharp. Mm. I, I, I write the plays that I want them to act in because <laughs> I'd love to see them Absolutely. do that. The, uh, but I, I also wonder if I've prepared the answer a little bit too much now. And you asking me then, because I love your answer so completely about writing for one person and it's a gift. Can I ask you... As a final question, my son texted me, and you know you're into technology and shit. Aren't you? <laughs> well, texting's te old, pretty old technology. <laughs> you know, yeah, he 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 probably put it on Tumblr as well <laughs> or something. The uh, he texted me before the start of uh, this interview. Mm. He knew I was doing a podcast interview, and you, like he, like I, are fans of podcasts, specifically the podcast of Richard Herring, who I nick most of. Mm. You know, you know, in my head when I'm doing this, I'm a bit like Richard Herring. Yeah. The but but I'm not clearly in that life he has his emergency questions and, and my, my son texted me an emergency question for yeah, you, let's do an emergency which question. is a very different type of the one the one Richard Herring would ask and his emergency question for you is are you an optimist no I'm not I that's uh, sad but I, I, I any answer I said the yes would feel like a lie I right. don't think I am an optimist no but I think I'm I think I'm kind. I'm certainly kinder than I used to be. And I think I'm interested in other people, but and I'm very, very curious. And I'm quite fun, but I'm not an optimist. It's a fascinating thing. When I talk about optimism, I always talk about necessarily theatre as an optimistic form. Why? Because when we write plays, we write them in the hope that people will read them as openly See as them, they can. Surely. Yeah, but there's a stage stages of things. The read, oh, read, read them the, 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 So yeah, so an artistic director will read it with as an open yes. mind as possible, and if he likes it or she likes it, she'll choose the best director for that. Who'll read it, do really good work, and get the best team together and get the best actors and the best designers that they can oh, I see. who will work really hard and you're just like yeah I think they will I think they will and I think audiences will yeah. come and when they come 
they'll they'll be open. They're not going to come and judge it before it started. They'll come and want that's to true. see that the play. That is all very optimistic. And for me, that's innately optimistic. I assume the best in the people I'm working with and writing for. Absolutely. But they are all going to die. Even if it's brilliant. That's... I mean, which is fine, but it's, you know, I, even more beautiful for that. Theatre carries within it, necessarily carries death in its form. Absolutely, it's the most ephemeral of all of them, right? Yeah. Plays end, productions end. Yeah. And, and, and there's always a weird thing, like going back to a theatre after a play's closed, mm. the first time you come to the Royal Court after Enron's on, the first time you got the Cottesloe, mm. The Dorfman, they fucking closed the theatre after after Edward, <laughs> so it wasn't that big a problem. Yeah. Um, or, or I don't think that was connected. I don't think they were like... The, uh, but the first time we go back to a space where our plays have lived and see that somehow the theatre's managed to continue without us. Oh, yes. It's like going back to a workplace. You go back to a workplace yes. and you assume that in your absence the whole industry's collapsed. That's and such a And you go back point. and it's like, oh no, they're still doing all right. That's <laughs> such a good point. There's Does no that pain. mean my life had no value? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's such a good point because there's so little other artistic expression that's like that, is there? Mm. Books are in and of themselves. Mm. They, you know, yeah, they're, they're kind of in and of themselves and I think that's very true. These are kind of, is, you're a smaller part of a bigger thing, which is kind of beautiful. This is like that, and I'm driven towards that. Yeah, yeah, everything ends. Podcast too. Great ending point, isn't it? <laughs> Lucy you said Preble. you wanted structure. Thanks. Lucy Preble, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen Simon and tune in next week to next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. Ta-ra.